You're listening to the best of the Martha Zoller Show. You can hear the show live Monday through Friday from 9 to 11 on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN and streaming at accesswdun.com. You can find all things Martha Zoller at marthazoller.com. Celebrated our diversity and our differences for so long that we forgot all of the ways we're really just the same as Americans, bound by a common set of ideals that set this nation into motion 250 years ago. And that's why I'm proud to say tonight that I'm running for United States president to revive those ideals in this country. It is the Martha Zoller Show, and that is Vivek Ramaswamy, and I may have said this wrong. I'm learning as we go. And he is an entrepreneur and is a person that has announced he's running for president in the Republican Party. He didn't say Republican Party in his announcement, and you can either in the two-and-a-half-minute uh, thing you can find on his his website or... In his interview he did with Tucker Carlson. I don't know if that's because he wants to appeal to a wide range of people in these states that allow crossover voting. Um, or, But when you go to his website, the donation platform is something called Win Red. And you have to be a Republican to participate in that fundraising platform. He is a self-made person. He has started several multi-billion dollar companies. Uh, and he's 37 years old. I mean, he's very young uh, for this. Now, is this somebody, I mean, he reminds me of Tulsi Gabbard in the Democratic field from four years ago, that he's going to be kind of a, a squeaky wheel. He may get some traction, but we'll see. So now we have announced Donald Trump, Nikki Haley, Vivak Ramaswamy, and... Uh, Tim Scott is making some sort of a soft announcement here very soon. Uh, Mike Pompeo's thinking about it. Uh, Governor Sununu's thinking about it. Um, Chris Christie is thinking about it. Uh, John Bolton has already said he's in the race, but I haven't seen whether he's raising money. And he's one of those guys that's over 75. So I guess I should check that to be sure. But maybe it's his mustache that makes him look that old. But I think he is. um, Let's see how old he is, according to Wikipedia. He is. How old is he? Oh, well, 1948. Does that make him 75 years old? No. Yeah, it does. 74. Okay, so he's just under the wire for that. So anyway, uh, I don't think John Bolton's going to go anywhere. I don't think Vivak Ramaswamy's going to go anywhere. But I think he's going to bring an important discussion to this. And I'm excited because there's some young people. Because let me just tell you something, Don Lemon, who's coming back on the air today. Nikki Haley's 51. That's really young for running for office. Okay, if you recall, I believe that um, Barack Obama turned 50 in office. And, of course, John Kennedy died in office and he was 47. So 51 is pretty young of people that are running. Uh, John, I think that Obama was actually the youngest, uh, second youngest elected. I think Kennedy was the youngest elected. But young people and people of color have usually been the purview of the Democratic Party. And what you're seeing is younger people and people of color running in the Republican Party for president, and that the people they're talking about on the Democrat side are Joe Biden. They're still talking about Bernie Sanders, who's over 80. They're talking about, I I wish, I wish, and believe me, this is not an endorsement of Amy Klobuchar, okay? Uh, My friend Mark loves Amy Klobuchar. He's a Democrat, and that's okay. Um, but Amy Klobuchar would be, if I were a Democrat, and I was, say, running the Democratic National Party, which I wouldn't be, okay, but I would be pushing Joe Biden to retire, to tell Kamala Harris, hey, don't run, nobody likes you, and I'd be pushing for Amy Klobuchar. Because I'm telling you what, the only person that has worse approval ratings than Joe Biden is Kamala Harris. And it, it, the, the amazing thing, and then right behind him is former President Donald Trump. 
as far as approval ratings. So if we end up with another, this will be if we have Joe Biden and Donald Trump. And I know, Donna, you're going to be mad at me. And there's other people that listen to me out there. They're going to be mad at me. But I'm just telling you the facts. I'm always going to tell you the truth. Okay. The problem is we have now for two election cycles had two very unpopular people running. And we had to really pick. Everybody talks about picking between the lesser of two evils. We really have done it the last two election cycles. At least in 2012, and uh, we had Obama and Romney, and both of them were pretty well liked. It was just, and then 08, we had, who was it in 08? We had Obama and McCain. Okay, McCain was a crusty curmudgeon and, and was was revered but not liked very much because of his history as being a war hero. So, you know, we've had two bad cycles of bad choices. We ended up getting very good policies out of Donald Trump through 2016. We got great policies. But as far as likability, and as much as I wish this wasn't true, and I want you to hear me here, I wish this wasn't true, but... Our American politics, since we took it out of the smoky back rooms where the party leaders picked who we were going to have as candidates, and I know we said we didn't like that, but since we got away from that, personality has become the most important factor. Likeability is the most important factor. Donald Trump was more likable than Hillary Clinton. I know that's, you know, hard to believe. Joe Biden was more likable than Donald Trump. Unfortunately, that's where we are, folks. I remember I get this opportunity to interact with students from around the world. And they comment on this because most other countries, you vote for the party. And then the party structure picks the people that are going to be in the offices. It's more of a parliamentary kind of thing. And... We vote for the person. We very much vote for the person. And I don't know if that's good or bad. I think we've had bad choices the last two cycles. And again, I'm going to give a caveat of that. In fairness to Donald Trump, he was not given a moment's reprieve. Okay, from the minute he was elected, they had those million women with the pink hats and everybody complaining. I worked for Senator Perdue at the time. We had we had people protesting outside of our office, resist Tuesdays, resist Trump Tuesdays. Every single week on Tuesdays, people were protesting outside our office. They didn't give him a chance. They were attributing every horrible thing they could imagine happening to Donald Trump. And as I understand it from people who are close to President Trump, that he was okay with it until about April of 2017 because he knew the transition was going to be difficult and he was used to people being against him. But he thought eventually people would see that he was doing what he promised to do and that things would calm down. But that you know what happened then. Nancy Pelosi started blabbing every time she came out of the White House and criticizing Trump. She famously tore up the paper behind him. You know, and and there was just a level of disrespect. Now, some the people on the other side are going to say Trump showed that disrespect also, that he didn't show that kind of respect to the office. But you know where you saw him show that level of respect? When he went to uh, England to visit the Queen, Donald Trump was like the presidential guy you always wanted him to be when he was in the presence of Queen Elizabeth because he had great respect for her. He revered her. Um, he was a fighter the rest of the time. And I think his policies were great. But I think he did three things that really hurt him in the 2020 election. And I don't mean to beat a dead horse, but we're going to be talking about 2020 soon when the indictments come out of Fulton County. I think it won't be as many as have been leaked, but there will be some indictments out of Fulton County, and then we're going to have to dredge all this stuff up again. But he did three things that I think I hope he will learn from. And if he learns from, I'll reassess his candidacy. But so far, he's not showing that he's learned from any of this. He's doing it exactly the same way he did it in 2020. And he thinks he's going to get a different result. 
because he truly believes the election was stolen. And let me tell you something, folks. The election was not stolen. There were a couple of things that happened that are like October surprise type things, but that's not stealing an election. That's convincing people how to vote. And unless you want to take the vote away from people, which I know Allen and Rabin County does, you're not going to get this different outcome. So the three things he did, one, he kept complaining and criticizing John McCain even after he was dead. And he lost Arizona and put Arizona into the turmoil that they are in today because of that. One. Two, he used his rallies as who am I mad at today instead of what did I accomplish? And he could have done that. He had so many accomplishments to talk about. He should have done that. Instead of just whipping up the red meat, he already had the red meat. He, the people that came to the rallies were already voting for him. The rallies should have been about, how do I get other people to vote for me? And then finally, in that first debate, I watched that first debate with a bunch of Republican women who were on his team, who were working for him, who were walking neighborhoods, who were totally involved with Trump. And the way he behaved in that first debate made them cringe. And President Trump lost because women in a certain demographic turned against him because of his behavior. And that may not be fair. That may not be right. My friend Ann Coulter says, you know, the biggest mistake we ever did was giving women the vote because they vote emotionally. I don't agree with that. Because I don't vote emotionally. I vote for the person. But he did those things. And had he changed even one of those things, all he needed was 150,000 more votes in certain places, and he would have won. And let me just tell you this. He only won by 90,000 votes in certain places in 2016. So he even lost some of the people that are normally always with Republicans. So, folks, if you're not willing to look at the truth about what happened in 2020, the good and the bad, then you're never going to fix 2024. And I, for one, don't want another four years of Joe Biden. And I'm going to work as hard as I can to get the best Republican candidate I can. It's local radio, and that's why you're listening. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. It is the Martha Zoller Show, and, you know, I have said um, from the beginning of the Biden administration that if, if, if he had not taken the approach of, um, you know, I'm going to reverse everything President Trump ever did, with the and and really, if he had just left in place the border policies and the oil and gas policies, I think would be in a very different place today economically than we are. And you know, Joe Biden has long record. President Biden has a long record of things, and um, he's been you know domestic policy. I don't agree with him on his domestic policy, but I um, you know, but we can work our way out of that. My biggest concern is always foreign policy. Now, um, Kara Moriarty is the CEO and president of Alaska Oil and Gas Association. And I saw her very early in the morning uh, last week, uh, as I'm always up early watching, and it must have been really early for her, um, talking about uh, the Biden administration stifling Alaska oil and a particular drilling project. So I reached out immediately because I wanted to have her on to talk about it because she told me things that I didn't know about oil and gas in Alaska. And I think that it's really important. I think a lot of us talk about Alaska as if we know it. I visited Alaska for the first time this summer and, uh, it's an amazing place and a very important part of our oil and gas industry. Kara Moriarty, thank you so much for being with us today. Well, good morning, Martha. Thank you for having me. So did you go to bed last week before you did that interview? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's, 
it's one thing you you find out when you do stuff like that. You know who's up early on the East Coast because uh, <laughs> you you reached out right away. I have a girlfriend who lives in Rhode Island. I have a girlfriend who lives in Florida. <laughs> so yes. Yes. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I I I I am a morning person as well. Uh, so doing an interview at twelve forty five a.m. Alaska time, I. I took a little cat nap, admittedly, um, and then uh, kind of got pretended I was getting up for the day like a graveyard shift, and then, you know, took a little cat nap afterwards. So anyway, but um, you know, but I'm I'm always happy to talk about uh, the role that Alaska does play and can play in meeting America's energy needs. So I'm just happy to be on with you this morning and and look forward to the conversation. So uh, tell us what the Willow Project is. So just to give your listeners some context, um, Alaska currently produces about 500,000 barrels a day. We're only about 4% of the nation's current production, but we have the potential for a lot more. Uh, you know, when our pipeline was built uh, back in the 70s, it has a maximum capacity of 2 million barrels a day. And, you know, just it's a, uh, you know, like any energy source like that, it doesn't last forever. So you're always constantly looking for new sources of oil and gas. And we have massive uh, resources left. I mean, the uh, USGS estimates in existing fields, both on state land and federal land, which this project is on, and if you include the offshore and if you included ANWR, I mean, we probably have 20, 30 billion barrels of oil remaining. And so when you put it in that context, um, you know, we could we can continue to play a role for the next generation, which all a forecast show that the demand is still going to be there. So this project that uh, that the White House and the Department of Interior are currently weighing a final decision on is called the Willow Project. It's in the National Petroleum Reserve. Uh, the uh, NPRA is what the acronym is, is National Petroleum Reserve Alaska. And NPRA was set aside, uh, frankly, 100 years ago. Um, after World War One, when uh, the president at the time said we needed to transition off coal to oil and have oil available for the next conflict. Um, and so, you know, it, we didn't need it. Um, but there's probably 8 to 10 billion barrels of oil in MPRA. And this project uh, in Willow would be um, about 180,000 barrels per day at peak production. It's it would be a 20 to 30 year uh, oil field, um, and it would continue. Obviously, I mean, if you think about it in terms of what that would mean just for our pipeline, um, if we're at 500,000 barrels a day now, I mean that's a you know 25 percent increase almost. So, I mean it's it's a it's a massive project for us. It's a uh, probably a six to seven billion dollar investment um 2500 jobs mostly union jobs uh, that would be created and billions of revenue for both the federal treasury because it's on federal land so the industry would pay royalties to the federal government as well as to the local citizens and to the state coffers um in our production tax so I mean, it's just, it's a, it's a, it's an incredible opportunity. It's a project that actually got its permitting started in the Obama administration about 70 months ago. Um, and I said 70, 70. Um, and so now we're just waiting for the White House to see if they're going to approve uh, the preferred alternative that would allow this project to move forward. And, you know, it seems to me, it's so interesting to me, because whether you're talking about this project or even the Keystone Pipeline, which was a lot, which I think it was about 20,000 union jobs, um, I thought the Democrats were pro-union. And it seems like these are good-paying union jobs. It also provides something that I know that a lot of the 
a lot of the uh, progressives are are all interested in the fact we need to transition. And I don't disagree we don't need to transition from oil, but we're not there yet. And merely uh, buying an electric car is not going to do that because how do you generate the electricity? Okay, and... And how do you deal with with the other things that go along with that? So it's it's like any transition. You can't really force it because right now um, there's still mostly oil and gas is used as the base. But I'm an all-in kind of energy person. If it works, I live in the North Georgia mountains, so wind and solar don't really work here because um, you don't have direct sunlight. I mean, you have some direct sunlight, but because of the mountains and that kind of thing, it changes things around. And the wind, the same problem. You can't get consistent energy production from wind and solar, but you could use other things. Uh, I just think we need to be all in about it, and we need to be all in with American production. Because even though it's a worldwide commodity, if we produce more in the United States, we're safer and we're better. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and the funny thing is, is the trade unions and the Alaska AFL-CIO that represents all unions in Alaska, they're all in on this project. And so, um, you know, this is actually a project that has amazingly broad support across uh, a, a variety of organizations that kind of rare for all of them to agree on anything because you've got the Alaska Federation of Natives, which is a statewide organization of all Alaska Natives and tribes. You have the AFL-CIO, as I mentioned. You have the Alaska Chamber of Commerce, so your hardcore business community. We're all in saying this is a project that's really important. And interestingly enough, um, we have one representative in Congress. You know, Alaska's small. We only have 750,000 citizens. And so... Uh, you know, in our longtime Republican congressman, unfortunately, uh, Congressman Young died of a heart attack about a year ago. In fact, it was a year ago in February. And so we had this special election and ranked choice voting, and that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> but we now We're have having that debate in Georgia have, right now. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I'm not the expert in that. You know, I can get yeah. somebody else, Martha, to talk about okay, that. You got it. Uh, um, but, um, you know, but we now have a Democrat congresswoman, um, and she's wonderful. I mean, she's actually a very nice woman. I've known her a long time. Um, and she's all in, I mean, you know, and so here's this, you know, new Democrat that is pounding on the white house to say, Hey, this is a really important project in Alaska and it meets a lot of different objectives. It's it's a it's a win for the president, frankly, because he's recognizing that he calls it gap oil. We call it sustainability. But the, but you you said it like we can't transition to these other sources of energy overnight. And there's going to be some parts of America and frankly, the world that some of those alternatives aren't going to make economic sense. We have lots of places in Alaska where wind and solar are certainly not going to make sense, obviously. And so, you know, it's, it's an opportunity for him to get increased production on federal land by an American company creating union jobs that can help meet the energy needs. And most importantly, we have some of the lowest greenhouse gas emissions in the country. We have a process that we've been doing on the North Slope for 30 years, 35 years, where the gas comes up and we don't have a lot of flaring like you see in other parts of the country um, where they burn that gas off when they're producing oil. We take that gas and we re-inject it back into the ground to enhance oil recovery. And so the Bureau of Land Management. Uh, environmental impact statement has said that willow will account for 0.3%, so less than 1% of all greenhouse gas emissions by 2030. 0.3%. 
So the reality is we know that somewhere in the world, this 180,000 barrels per day is going to get produced in the next 10 years. If it's not produced in Alaska, it's going to get produced somewhere else that does not have the same type of practices that we use or the same type of oversight that, you know, they don't care about the environment like we care about the environment. So it's actually a win for the environment, too, to be to producing more oil in America than other places. Amen to that. And I use that same argument when I'm talking about coal. And not that I think we should go back to coal, but if we don't produce, we burn coal cleaner than anybody in the world burns coal. Mm -hmm. And so if we don't burn it, the coal mines, they're going to ship it to places. They got to stay in business. They're going to ship it to places that don't burn it clean. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, well, it's, and, and they're staying in business because the, there's a demand. I mean, it's, it's, it's a simple economic. I mean, if there was no demand for coal right. or oil or gas, whether it's in America or somewhere else, they wouldn't be in business. So they're going to, they're going to go find, they have a product that people, need and there is a demand for it and and you're right i mean i've got lots of friends in the coal industry here too i mean we are kind of all in this together and frankly you know if you want to start talking about the next wave of carbon capture and utilization and storage to actually really make a difference in reducing emissions my friends in the coal industry, they have that technology. They have that technology. Kara Moriarty. And we do, too. I could talk to you all day about this, and we're definitely <laughs> going to have you on again. Um, uh, Kara oh, sure. Moriarty, president and CEO of Alaska Oil and Gas. Folks, you need to let your congressmen and senators know that they need to put pressure on and make sure we go forward with this project. We need to be all in on American energy sources because if we produce it ourselves, yes, it's a world market. Yes, it's a world market. But we it'll be safer and better if we produce it ourselves. Putting the talk in news talk. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. Pete Sepp is joining me, a longtime friend of the program from the National Taxpayers Union. And uh, I know I'm not getting any older. How about you, Pete? (laughs) (laughs) Every day is an exercise (laughs) in aging here in Washington, (laughs) D.C. So, you know, tell us, first of all, update us on what the National Taxpayers Union is doing. And then let's talk about where we are right now. Sure. Just uh, to refresh everyone's memories, we're a nonprofit, nonpartisan citizen group. We were founded all the way back in 1969 to work for lower, fairer, simpler taxes, less wasteful spending in government, more accountability from the political establishment. One of the things we are zeroing in on right now is that $80 billion in additional funding that the IRS received last fall. And surprise, surprise, the report that the IRS was supposed to come out with uh, saying how they're going to spend this money well, that deadline has slipped, and Acting Commissioner Werfel, who uh, will soon be confirmed as the IRS's new commissioner, said in the coming weeks they will unveil hopefully some detail, maybe not all, to the public about how they're going to spend all that money and stick to this promise that was made that no one making less than $400,000 a year would be targeted under this new budget that the IRS will have for tax enforcement. We'll see what well, happens I can, there. I can tell you, as a small business owner, what they need to be spending their money on. Okay, my husband and I own a business. We have a correctional nursing business, and we provide nursing services for the Hall County Detention Center. And um, we had an issue to about two years ago, so it wasn't that long ago, Um, And we had a situation where we finally had to have a meeting with an IRS agent who had no idea what was going on, was was coming into our office and making deals with people that didn't have the authority to make the deals. I mean, talking to people that were not uh, the decision makers in the business. 
And when we finally had to get the printouts, it was like off of one of those dot matrix printers, Pete, that that none of us have anymore. So I can tell you where the IRS needs to update. They need to update their systems. They need to update their customer service. And they need to update their ability to stop sending a letter one week saying you owe money, a month later saying they owe you money, and then a, one, a month after that saying everything's okay. You don't know yeah. what to believe. Yeah, it's all contradictory. And what I think the Biden administration just doesn't get, but the National Taxpayer Advocates Office does, lots of tax experts, lots of practitioners say this. If you want better compliance with the tax system, number one, make it easier to understand. That's Congress's job. Number two, allow better customer service. What you were just saying, Martha, Compliance comes from people who have confidence and faith in their government that they know what they're doing. Well, and that's why typically when we've lowered tax rates and made them flatter and fairer, I mean, I'm a fair tax advocate, but but when we have over the years made tax rates flatter and fairer, you see revenues go up. They go up because the system is easier to understand for a while, and then Congress starts adding and taking away and doing all kinds of things, and then it gets confusing again. But uh, we just got so much work to do. And, and, you know, I know this isn't your world because you're in the taxpayer world, but I would be willing to bet every blankety-blank department that they've built a building for in Washington, D.C. needs a top-to-bottom audit to see how yes. they do things because Nikki Haley's not wrong and I'm not endorsing her, but she's not wrong that we need to have a real update of our systems in the federal government. Yes. It's not just the IRS. There's a whole alphabet soup of agencies that need updating, that need upgrading, that need better personnel policies, that need better customer service. I mean, one right off the top of my head is the Federal Trade Commission. Uh, You may have seen in the Wall Street Journal last week, one of the commissioners, a Republican appointee, decided to resign from her commission post because she can no longer stand what she calls lawlessness on the part of the chair of the FTC, Lena Kahn, and her continued crusades, not only against tech industries, but also industries of all kinds. And this is the thing we need to be worried about in addition to IRS overreach. When you have federal agencies that have very vague laws that they're allowed to enforce, and antitrust law is about as vague as tax law sometimes, that's a prescription for disaster. It hurts the entire economy, no matter what you believe should or shouldn't happen to so-called big tech. Uh, giving this kind of power to somebody like Lena Khan with an FTC enforcing vague laws, that's very dangerous. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's what we have to do. And we have to be more accountable about taxpayer money, you know, where where it is our money. Government doesn't have any money without us giving it to them. So President Biden, as well-meaning as he was going to Ukraine yesterday and giving them $500 million, we don't have that. We don't have $500 million to give. We've got tragedies at home that need to be taken care of. So tell us what you think is the best way to proceed. Well, First of all, we need to get this business of the debt ceiling settled to the point where we're not having this debate about raising the borrowing limit of the federal government every year or two. We're going to have to have a debate that allows us to start pushing back against more borrowing, pulling back on wasteful spending. And it can start with this debate over whether to raise the debt ceiling. We're not talking about brinksmanship here. What we're talking about is, and we've proposed this, National Debt Awareness Week, where 20 hours of debate will be scheduled on Democratic as well as Republican proposals introduced in the last three Congresses to actually move the needle on reducing federal spending and debt. Then, We can have our final up or down vote on whether to raise the debt ceiling, but not before. We need to have accountability so that we're not doing this over and over again. It was Barack Obama who famously said, well, you know, 
not increasing the debt ceiling is like getting a check at a restaurant and walking out on it. Well, raising the debt ceiling is like getting that check, handing it to the kid in the high chair at the table next to you and saying, you deal with it. Neither option is a good one here, and we have to figure out why we have gotten in such a bad spot with our borrowing. It is bipartisan in nature. That's the problem, and we've got to tackle it. Now, Pete, you're an optimistic and positive person, and most of the time I am. But here's what I think is going to happen. I think that one thing they agree on is they don't want to deal with this again before the 2024 election. And I think they're (laughs) going to come up with some kind of deal that's going to either suspend or raise greatly the debt ceiling between now and the 2024 election. I think they did that leading up to 2020, if I remember correctly. And then they're going to, you know, and then I think, I hope... They're going to really look at the budget because if you go back to what I think they should do is if they're going to do that with the debt ceiling, they should go back to the 2019 budget, which actually would be, you know, a balanced budget by our revenues coming in today. Maybe rework a few things because it's a little bit different than it was. But get all that covid money out of there. Get all that stuff out of there, because, you know, as well as I do, once they put something in a budget, they never take it out. And so That's we've right. got to really do that, and we got to somehow get to a process like we do in Georgia, where we look at one department a year so that every seven years there's like an audit, a complete audit of the Georgia budget. It's it's not a zero-based budgeting 100%, okay? But it's a, it's, it, it's a rolling zero-based budgeting, if you yes. will. At least over a certain period of years, we're looking at everything, and we've yes. got to get to that. That's right. I mean, there are currently somewhere between three and four hundred billion dollars worth of federal programs that have not been authorized for years on end. In other words, they have not gone through that audit process you just described. And I'm not talking about entitlements, which that's spending on automatic pilot. I'm talking about federal agencies that haven't had any kind of hearing on their existence, their mission, whether they're doing a good job for years, some of them decades. We have to reverse that. Many years ago, I interviewed Representative John Lewis, and and I did a number of times, but this is the first time. And, And ironically, we were having a discussion about the budget. It's funny how things never change. And I said, look, Congressman Lewis, I know that you and I have different priorities about the budget. You're a Democrat. I'm a Republican. But I bet if I listed 20 things that I thought were wasteful and you listed 20 things that you thought were wasteful, there might be two or three that overlap. And why can't we work on those? And he actually acknowledged that that was a pretty good idea. (laughs) Because, you know, I understand Democrats have different priorities than Republicans do. Okay, I get that. But we all ought to have the priority of fiscal responsibility in our budget. And if it's it's amazing to me that we've got enough revenue that if we just went back to 2019 spending, that we could balance the budget. And that seems doable. Yeah, when you think about it, Does anyone believe the federal government was starving in 2019? (laughs) It certainly wasn't. And so, (laughs) of course we can go back. We're we're talking about three years. So, Pete Sepp, if people need to know more about the National Taxpayers Union or they want to find out more about what you're doing, how could they do that? They can visit us online at NTU, our initials for National Taxpayers Union, NTU.org. Lots going on, and especially in the area of tech and antitrust, taxpayers need to be watching those issues very carefully because, here again, this could be a bipartisan problem if they overregulate. Pete Sepp, it's great to talk to you again. It's been too long. It won't be as long until the next time. Outstanding. I'm looking forward to it. It's where North Georgia comes to talk. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. We're here with Randy Davidson, and we started a chat with him last week talking about the uh, movie tax credit, and uh, we're just talking about so many different things. I wanted to have him come back on to just kind of talk a little bit more. Randy Davidson from Georgia Entertainment News. How are you? 
Hey, Martha, thank you very much. Yeah, we had we had a great conversation Friday, and uh, hopefully you had a great weekend. I did. I had a very good weekend. And look, I, I, you know, we talked to Emery Donahue before we came in, and, and he actually thinks we ought to do away with all the tax credits. I mean, he just thinks that giving tax credits in the long run doesn't help. But what we've done here in Georgia, and, and you know, he kind of made the statement of, you know, uh, you know, allegedly creating jobs or something like that. Uh, but there is a huge economic impact of the entertainment industry throughout Georgia. The, the question I have, because there's always this idea, and maybe you don't know the answer, of, of, oh, yeah, but all these people are coming in and they're bringing their values with them, and that's what's changed the state. What do you think about that when you hear that? I know you've heard that a lot. Yeah, I have. I I, you know, I, and we talked a little bit about this uh, Friday, Martha. Too is that you, you, you've got just as you have two sides of the aisles. You got, you got two sides of the of, a, of tax credits. You got people that want to get rid of all of them, and you've got people that see them as a benefit. You know, certainly targeted. You know, the the film the film tax credit, for example, is very um, has been very beneficial to the state. It hits it hits the sweet spot of where where society is headed, you know, in terms of employment opportunity and workforce development, and, and George is right there in the middle of it. The future workforce is a creative workforce. So this investment, I don't know that we, we knew all of that whenever the tax credit uh, was put in, into place, but it happens to be where, you know, this state will thrive going forward. And the benefits are, are really clear. You have a lot of people that just look at, let's look at the productions that spend this amount of money and let's look at the tax, tax dollars and what's the, the bottom line, black and white, you know, return on investment. And you can't really look at it like that. You have to look at it as if there was $4.4 billion available to spend last year in the physical year that was spent in Georgia. That money is roaming around looking for a place to land. And thanks to the film tax credit, it landed in Georgia. So that that's <clears throat> that's the idea. That's the benefit. And then we have the value of time, too, because every year as that grows and that builds and we have a stable environment in Georgia, it's just natural that that becomes, you know, part of part, part of our workforce. So that's a very simplistic look at it. But that that's exactly what's happening in Georgia. So what do you think will ultimately happen in the industry? I mean, if, you know, if any, obviously, I don't think any company expects any entertainment company or any other kind of company expects something to just stay in place and never change and all of that. So what are you looking for when you cover this? So, so one of the things that we're, that we're monitoring is, is, is it, our adjustments. In, in in this that might be made to make it better, to make it more um, sustainable. Because, you know, there is this theory, and, and we have, I, I talked to a couple of legislators uh, since Friday, and there is this theory that, hey, tax credits are meant to as training wheels, you know, and you eventually get off of the, you get, get rid of the training wheels. But, you know, that's not, that's not necessarily true i mean i i believe in in the in the film industry that there will always need to be an incentive of, of sorts and it needs to be a stable one georgia has a, georgia's georgia's incentive is very attractive to production companies you know that's why we've had these this billions dollars billions of dollars of investment that is very that that has rooted the industry here and this is real estate this is soundstage space this is people moving here this is um, you know, you know, the effects go way beyond what most people think about. So I, 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 I see, I see maybe massages and things of massages to the, to the, to, uh, you know, certain aspects of it, but it certainly, it needs to be well thought out because it's a serious job, um, creator for this industry. I was, I, this weekend I was at an event, um, at, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of Sapria, but they're a, a pretty well-known nonprofit. One of the, one of the auction items, and I see this often when I go to events was, was an Ozark experience at Lake Lanier for $3,000, you know, and I, and I don't, I can't recall what it actually went for, but 
you know, that's one of those things that can't be measured is, is like even, even how nonprofit given and charitable things that have happened as a result of creating this industry that would, would have, you know, never been here. And there's, there's many other examples of just the spillover of the benefit of what that what that's done for this economy that's not really measured in studies and in people's thinking. So a lot of it is just education, you know, keeping keeping out in front, showing these people, sharing these stories, sharing these um, uh, these other economic benefits that that are that are clear to me, but may may not be so to others. Yeah, and I think you're right about that, that there's this opportunity. I mean, what I love about Georgia, and I think one of the big reasons why there's been a movie industry here since the 70s and probably before that, is that in a relatively compact location, you have a state that's that is like half the size of California, but has everything. It has mountains, it has beaches, it has flatlands, it has... Um, urban. I mean, it's got everything you could want for a movie set or a TV set or something like that in a much more compact area than the state of California is. And California doesn't have everything. <laughs> that's that's so true. I mean, we we are fortunate. You know, if you if you put this same you know credit in a different location, I don't think that you would have the success that you would have in Georgia because of what you just for what you just stated. I mean, it's still easy to get everywhere in Georgia, even if you fly if you fly into the international airport in in Atlanta, you can get most anywhere in the state that you need for for that scenery that you just stated. And then on the on the other side too, because of SCAD and some of the other companies that that have invested in. Um, and I won't, I won't get too nerdy on you here, but have invested in certain technology that makes it that that creates those backdrops, you know, um, with 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 excellent quality. And, and we maybe we'll do another uh, we'll do another call about the, the developments in technology in the in the industry at another time. But um, but that's a result of the investment from from the film tax credit. But so you're we- you're right. The, yeah. Do we see that that tax credit is being invested in and it's helping Georgia? Because look at the numbers and I'm not again, I tend to favor the tax credit, but um, we now have gone from about four point four billion dollars to seven point three billion dollars um, in uh, it, and that's, I think, jobs created or in Georgia. I think that's around the numbers. Is that about right? Or am I looking at the wrong numbers? I, 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 there, I think you're. I think you're looking at something, uh, something a little bit different. But the so the there was four point four billion dollars of direct spend in the last physical year, and that keeps going up. I mean, we had the we had a slight pause in the you know during COVID, but the direct spending that the state reported in the last physical year that it that you know that uh, was four point four was four point four billion dollars. So that continues to that continues to rise, and you know. I mean, look at Athena uh, Studios in, in Athens, um, a big investment. There's a Blue Star. There's other – there's lots of and, – and, and I don't want to just focus on, you know, the, the, the real estate um, situation specifically, but that is the biggest example of the investment. Well, and they're also bringing making- in the companies, right, that are not just the sound stages and all that stuff, but they're bringing in the companies that make the stuff for the sound stages. I remember touring Three Ring Studios, I think out in Covington, uh, before they opened, and that was the thing that was really impressive to me. Absolutely. I was just uh, in L.A. maybe three weeks ago and and meeting with companies that are trying to figure out the best best routes to get here to adjoin themselves to the newly planned studios and the studios that will be coming on online this year i mean it's it's a great attractor for business you know you talk about uh workforce development and job creation and um you know everything that the governor is 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 high on and what's making the state continue to be ranked number one by site selector magazines and and uh receiving awards and accolades all over those are the things that that are that that have to be done it's the stable environment that that we have that folks know that businesses know that they can invest here and that it's a stable environment because if it's not 
and if and and if they if they make changes without careful consideration and review, then th- those things change not over years. Uh, it's pretty immediate. And there's other states that are prime examples of how um, their tax credit and their business activity and their job flight. You know, uh, were damaged. And Randy, one more question. Is it fair to say, because there's a lot of talk about the stuff that gets a lot of media coverage, like uh, when the All-Star game left uh, Atlanta or supposedly there were threats over the overturning of Roe v. Wade and the Georgia heartbeat bill and people leaving. And what what I've observed is that the bean counters, if you will, are a lot less likely to really leave because of reasons like that. You know, they are much more likely to leave because of financial reasons than they are of these things that their A-list actors get all whipped up about. Uh, yeah, Martha, I love it. You, you, we, and we chatted a little bit about this on Friday. You, you're, you're exactly right. I, I'm really, and I'll, I'll say this, I'm really proud of our industry. You know, when, I, when we first launched Georgia Entertainment News in 2016, it was like every legislative session, it was kind of like, having a heart attack, you know, or like what's going to happen, you know, with, with some law or something that, that may make a, an actor or an actress mad, you know, and have them go public. But we, we've, we've, we've really gotten together, I think, as an industry to understand, and, e- and even the political folks have gotten together at least to know that boycotting and leaving and threats and, and that nature in that, in that vein do not, or you know, or it's not an option. You know, you don't you don't hurt families because you disagree with this or you agree with that. You know, you you business is here to create jobs, create an environment, create a great living condition for people. So, um, you know that that's been that's been actually one of the great things that has evolved. You know, after you know ser- several years of going through that. What can the industry do to make people feel better? about about what they, I mean they come in they make jobs that kind of thing but is there if you were giving advice to the industry what <laughs> what would you tell them they could do better when they're dealing with states like Georgia I, I think I think I think that many of them are trying to do it now and it and, and in some cases it, even though it's mature there it, it is there are it is new in a lot of ways but I think telling the stories and you know finding um Finding, but uh, bringing bringing more bringing more to light about the great work that's done, you know, about the developments that are done around productions in certain cities and, and uh, counties and things like that as a result of this production coming there, the donations that they've done, the education. I think Georgia Film Academy has has done a wonderful job. You know, Martha, I, I think you probably know this, but in in one uh, in one class that i went to it was it was people from 25 to 65 i met a plumber that had just decided to to retire and wanted but wanted to re-enter the workforce because it was too early for him to retire the age age diversity in this industry and the job creation for second careers and things like that is amazing and we just have to do a better job of telling people that this is an industry that that can happen in and that that's that's probably and that's what everybody is working on right now that is you know lobbying and advocating um you know for the continuation of this growth is to do a better job there so it's so it's more obvious um you know to our political leaders and to the population in general randy davidson thanks so much for being with us today i'm sure we will talk again thank you thank you martha To hear the full versions of last week's Martha Zoller shows, go to the podcast page at accesswdun.com and you can follow me on social media at Martha Zoller.